millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hello, and welcome to the History of Islam podcast, episode 10, Revelation. Hello, and welcome back to another installment of the History of Islam podcast. The city of Mecca is located in an arid gorge, in a range of mountains that ran parallel to the coastline over to the west of the Red Sea. These mountains are unbelievably bare, sharp, rocky crags with not a single scrap of soil to be found. From time to time, however, the dryness of the mountains and the dryness of the valley that they carved out was overturned emphatically with violent rainstorms that would flood the city completely, similar to the floods that we talked about when discussing South Arabia. It is very hard to believe and even harder to imagine a desert literally flooding. But this phenomenon, which was one of the reasons why the Quraysh had to renovate the Kaaba as we saw in our last episode, actually still continues into the modern era. I'll put some pictures and videos of this happening in the episode guide where you can literally see people swimming around the Kaaba. These very same mountains that carved out the valley that Mecca was situated in became for some people a sanctuary, a refuge from normal life where you could retreat to these mountains and isolate yourself from the rest of the world, where you would be able to embark in activities such as meditation and contemplating. Muhammad was one of those who partook in this practice and from time to time he would dedicate a couple of days in a month to go to a particular cave called Gharu Hira, the cave of Hira. And in this cave, he would remain in solitude. This particular cave was actually said to have been found uh, or discovered by Muhammad's grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. And you can actually go and visit this cave today. And when you see it, what you realize is this cave was actually less of a cave and more of, an, more of a crevice, a gap between the rocks on the side of the mountain. When you imagine a cave, you usually picture something that you can actually enter and walk about in. The cave of Hira, however, was very, very, very small, 
one man could just about squeeze into it with a little bit of space to spare. While sitting in the cave, the opening of the cave faces towards Mecca and the Kaaba is actually visible from the cave. And while you're sitting there, the Kaaba is almost framed by the rock. Um, it's, it's actually quite a pretty sight, which you can actually visit today. At some point in his life, Muhammad made his withdrawal from society a common ritual. He would take with him some provisions, uh, probably some dates, some milk or water, and he would head out to the mountains a few miles northeast of Mecca, aiming for what had by now become his usual spot, the cave of Hera. Once he was there, he would remain there for a few days, usually until he had exhausted the provisions he had brought up with him, and then after that, he would return home either for good or to restock on provisions in order to return to his self-imposed exile, his hermitage. One night towards the end of the month of Ramadan, the traditional month of retreat, Khadija was startled by the sight of her husband returning unexpectedly, bursting in, in a traumatized state. Muhammad called out to his wife to cover him. Zemmiluni, Zemmiluni, which has become uh, a famous phrase amongst Muslims. Cover me, cover me. Shivering uncontrollably is a well-known sign of shock. So Khadija must have been extremely alarmed and also concerned for the well-being of her husband, fearful for what may have caused him to be in the state that he was in. But she held her tongue and waited until he had calmed down sufficiently uh, and returned to a more normal state before she asked him any questions. Eventually, the effects of shock had worn off, the shivering had subsided and Muhammad returned to a more normal state. Khadija asked what had happened and what he told her would set off a spark that would change the world completely. While in the cave of Hira all alone, not a soul to be found, Muhammad felt a presence. He heard a voice ordering him to recite, but he could not tell where this voice was coming from. Iqra. Muhammad replied, Ma ana biqari. I am not a reciter. The presence that Muslims would later identify as the angel Gabriel grabbed Muhammad, smothered him, and then released him. Muhammad later described that after this, he felt that he was completely overcome with exhaustion. For a second time, he heard, Iqra, recite. Again, Muhammad repeated his earlier answer, and again, Muhammad was smothered until he felt that his life was about to end and he could not bear it anymore. For a third time, this process repeated exactly the same, except after Muhammad was released the third time, the supernatural presence had something different to say. Iqra, bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq, khalaq al-insana min alaq, iqra, وربك الأكرم الذي علم بالقلم علم الإنسان ما لم يعلم and this translates to recite in the name of thy Lord who created created man from a clot recite your Lord is the most generous he who has taught with the pen taught man what he did not know these verses are the first of many more yet to come in the distant future. These verses are the first utterances of what eventually would become the holy scripture of Islam. 
the divine word of God to his messenger on earth, the Quran. At the time of his first revelation, Muhammad was around 40 years old. His life after this would never be the same. After Muhammad had finished describing to Khadija what had happened to him that night, he told her pessimistically that he feared for himself. A suggestion that she swiftly dismissed uh, by telling him, Kalla abshir, for wallahi la yukhzikallahu abada. No way, be optimistic. God would never disgrace you. You are a good man. You help the poor. You help the destitute, you serve your guests generously, you help your family, and so on, trying to lift up his morale. When Muhammad said that he feared for himself, what he meant by this was that he feared that he had gone insane. He feared that he had gone mad or had been possessed by some kind of evil spirit. If you recall from one of our previous episodes, where I said that the poet in pre-Islamic Arabia was capable and often did play many different roles besides simply composing pleasant poetry for people to hear. The poet was propaganda machine, historian, storyteller, journalist, media agent and so on. Well, the poet could also be involved in the spiritual and mystical side of things. These type of poets were known as kahins and they would serve in the position of what we would today call an oracle or a shaman. These poets were said to be possessed by a divine or some kind of supernatural spirit that would grant them supernatural abilities, such as predicting the future, for example. This ability would be expressed through poetry, so these poets known as kahins would enter a trance-like state, and in this trance they would utter poetry that was inspired by the spirits that were thought to possess them. And people would go to these poets uh, and seek advice from them in public or private matters. They would ask them to seek counsel from the supernatural beings that possessed them. And this is possibly why Muhammad relates that when the presence in the cave of Hira asked him to recite, he simply replied, I am not a reciter, meaning that he wasn't a poet. He was not one of these kahins. These kahins were actually quite widespread. The same way the ancient Romans, for example, would consult a chicken's intestines to figure out whether they should go to war or not. The kahins played a similar advisory role that would link humans with the divine, with the supernatural. So, For a regular person, let's say you lost some camels, for example, you were herding them and they left the herd and now you've lost them and you can't find them, you would go to this kahin and you would seek help from this mediator between the divine and the normal and they would reply to you in some kind of poetic form whilst in this trance state being inspired by the spirits that supposedly possess them. And you would use that poetic advice to try and find your camels. Um, A leader that's trying to figure out whether going to war is the right option or not, for example, would go to one of these kahins and then seek advice from them, ask them if this was the correct route of action to take. And the kahin would go into his trance state 
and reply in some kind of poetic form. Later on, as you can imagine, many of Muhammad's opponents in Mecca would accuse him of simply being one of these poets, a kahin. Khadija, with her words, however, remedied the situation and put away all of Muhammad's immediate doubts and effectively became the first believer, the first convert to the religion of Muhammad. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Still, in spite of all of Khadij's encouraging words, reassuring him that God surely was on his side, they were just not quite enough. And it seems that doubt and uncertainty still plagued Muhammad's thoughts. Who was this being that appeared to him? Was it some kind of malicious spirit? Was it a figment of his imagination? Had he gone mad? Had he gone insane? In response to his continued doubt, uncertainty and confusion, Khadija went to a cousin of hers known as Waraka ibn Nofel, Waraka son of Nofel. Waraka was an old man, he was also blind at this point, and he lived in Mecca. The early traditional sources tell us that he was what we now call a Hanif. And this means that he was one of a handful of people that we know of who were not convinced by the pagan beliefs that dominated in their societies and were trying to seek some more convincing answers to their questions. Waraka, in his quest to find his answers, had eventually become somewhat of a scholar. He was said to have a wide knowledge of the scriptures, both Jewish and Christian. He was even said to have known Hebrew. We're not quite sure what his religious affiliation was exactly. Some people say that he was neither Jewish nor Christian, but he had abandoned the pagan beliefs of the Arabs and adhered to a monotheistic belief. However, some people say that he was a Christian, more specifically a Nestorian Christian. Khadija sent her husband to Waraka so that he could find out exactly what had happened to him. Muhammad went to Waraka who questioned him and after listening to his story and Muhammad's account of what exactly he had experienced that night in Gharu Hira, the cave of Hira, Waraka's mood shifted and he told Muhammad that he had been visited by the Namus. This word, this Namus, was new to the ears of Muhammad and new to the ears of the Arabs. Later Muslims would identify it with the Archangel Gabriel. The word Namus was in fact from the Greek word nomos, meaning law, which was the name given to the Torah, the main scripture of the Jewish religion which was revealed by God to Moses. 
The word nomos had passed from the Greek language into Aramaic dialects, which was the dominant language in places like Syria, which was probably where Waraka had obtained it from. What Waraka meant by saying that what had come unto Muhammad was the Nermus was that this was one of a series of the great revelations by which God made his will known to mankind. According to tradition, Waraka then warned Muhammad that he will be called a liar, he will be ill-treated, attacked and cast out, exiled by his own people. To which Muhammad expressed surprise, particularly at the notion that his own people would make war upon him and drive him out. Which is only natural from someone that has grown up in a society where things like family and kinship are an elemental factor of life. Finally, Waraka lamented if only he was a young man so that he could support him, promising Muhammad that if he lived to see that day, he would support him with all his strength. And so, with the reassurances of Khadija, Waraka, and more revelations, Muhammad ibn Abdullah from the clan of Bani Hashim became Prophet Muhammad, Messenger of God. At first, Muhammad decided to keep his discovery a secret. After his wife Khadija, the only people that would have known the secret would be those very close to him, his household, his immediate family and friends. Therefore, the first people to embrace Muhammad's religion would have been these very same people. After Khadija, the first few people that would fall under this category would be his two adopted sons, Ali and Zayd. Ali, as we mentioned, was not Muhammad's biological son, he was in fact his cousin, by virtue of him being the son of Muhammad's uncle, Abu Talib. However, what you have to keep in mind is that Ali was raised from a very early age in Muhammad's household, under Muhammad's care, and therefore, seen as he lived his life as though he was Muhammad's biological son, I think it is pretty safe to assume that the nature of their relationship was one akin to the relationship between a father and a son. Needless to say, it was most likely a very strong relationship. At the point of first revelation, in the eyes of the Arabs at the time, Ali would have been dawning on adulthood at the age of 10. Zaid is someone new to your ears. He has not been mentioned on the podcast before. So let me just introduce him. But before I do that, I would like to remind you of the character profile page available on the blog. You can reach it by going onto the categories slash index page, which has all the useful links that I mentioned on the podcast listed. This is going to become increasingly useful as more people become vital in our story central in our story and more people are introduced. The character profile page allows you to keep track of who's who if you ever need to do so. Zaid was not actually from the tribe of Quraysh but he was in fact an Arab. He was originally from a tribe in Central Arabia. In his childhood unfortunately he was kidnapped. Raiding Stealing and things like looting were very central in the nomadic Bedouin lifestyle. 
it was very natural for someone to be kidnapped in their childhood, uh, for your tribe to be raided and attacked. Most of the time, however, there was a civil side of it. It was very rare that people were actually killed during raids. It was mostly just material losses rather than the loss of life. But some would argue that your child being kidnapped is as good as them being killed. But we find that there is somewhat of an opportunity to regain someone that has been kidnapped. However, there is absolutely no opportunity to bring back someone who has died. Returning to Zaid. Zaid was kidnapped and sold off into slavery. Eventually, he ended up in the hands of Khadija, working for her as a servant before she even married Muhammad. After Khadija got married to Muhammad, she gifted Zayd to him. And so, for quite a long period of time, many years in fact, Zayd lived and worked under Muhammad's roof. One day, Zayd's father and uncle, who apparently were trying to track him down for a long period of time, found out his whereabouts. And so, they set out to Mecca in order to get him back, in order to retrieve their son. When they managed to pinpoint exactly where he was and pinpoint that he was in the servitude of a man named Muhammad, they approached Muhammad and asked for him back either by ransom or either by the goodness of his heart. Muhammad refused and proposed instead that Zayd himself should decide his fate. In the eyes of Zayd, the faces of his father and uncle were distant memories, strangers almost. He had lived many years in which he had not seen them. It had been a long time. By now, Zayd had lived the majority of his life in Muhammad's household, under Muhammad's care, who had presumably been quite good to him, resulting in a great affection springing up and forming between Muhammad and Zayd over the years. And this was undoubtedly amplified by Muhammad's personal lack of biological sons. When prompted to choose whether to return to his tribe with his father and uncle or to remain with Muhammad, Zayd chose Muhammad over his own family, over his own father and uncle. In response to Zayd's choice, Muhammad took him to the Kaaba and announced to all that he had adopted Zayd formally as his son. As was custom, they would inherit one another, meaning that if Muhammad died, Zayd would inherit all that he had owned, and if Zayd died, then Muhammad would inherit all that Zayd owned. From this, Zayd's father and uncle found some measure of fulfillment. And although their initial mission had in fact failed, and they were returning home empty-handed, they found some measure of satisfaction in knowing that first of all, their son was no longer a slave, and that now he was a member of the esteemed Quraysh. At the time of his conversion to Islam, Zayd was about 30 years old, well into his adulthood, and he was known to all as Zayd ibn Muhammad, Zayd the son of Muhammad. Sadly, that is the end of today's episode. Before I go, however, I would just like to remind you of two things. Number one, the new Facebook page that I have launched. Go over there, take a look at facebook.com forward slash the history of Islam podcast. Number two, the email subscription option on the blog so that you never miss another update. History of Islam podcast.blogspot.com. 
email subscription option will be on the sidebar. If you cannot find it, then you will find it on the categories slash index page where all the useful links on the blog are found. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next Thursday. your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.